You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and the breastpiece he put the Urim and Thummim. And he set the turban on his head and the turban in front he set the golden plate, the golden, the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin at its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. We are thankful for uh, this difficult book that you have given to us. You have revealed yourself in it. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, we pray for grace to trust you more and more through our time together today. We pray that you would get all of our hearts uh, this evening in worship to you for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, If you're visiting with us, This is now our second week in one of, if not the most difficult books of the Bible, Leviticus, or as we considered last week, uh, Leviticus, the book of the Levites, the priests of Israel, the book of the priests. Uh, The book, oh yeah, sorry, this is our first week of opening the lower elementary room. So if you are a K through third grader, This is a big deal, everyone. It's been two and a half years since you guys have gotten to go to a class. All right. Uh, If you are a K through third grader, you can meet your teachers right out here. You should already have your stickers and check in and all that stuff. And then we will see you guys after the service. Parents, you'll pick them back up uh, in their class after the service. But this book is foreign and startling to many of our modern Western expectations and sensibilities, but hopefully after one week, uh, you've already gotten a little tiny taste of why this book is so vital, so necessary, so uh, immensely practical in application, which we'll hopefully get more into this week than we did last week. Why this book, like the rest of the Old Testament, is vital and necessary for understanding the rest of the Bible for understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The the metaphor that we have often used of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament sets the stage. Uh, If this were a theater stage, if you were going to see a, uh, a play or a musical, the Old Testament is setting the stage. It is uh, getting the props 
just right. There might be a, a door to a living room here or a kitchen table and a window. All of these things uh, set the stage. Uh, and so that when the main character walks onto the stage, there are things around him so that he may not even need to speak. You can understand what's happening in this story without his even speaking. In the same way, if we didn't understand the Old Testament, if we didn't have the setting, if we went and saw this same main character go and perform a play just in a park, grass, no setting, no lighting, no music, no none of that, then perhaps you could still get the, the main gist of the story that's happening, but you might not get it all. And you might be uh, you might be led to interpret or understand the story differently than it was first intended in the first place. So Leviticus is an Old Testament book that perhaps more than any other uh, just fills up the stage. The stage is full. The, the props, the lighting, the music, everything is just set just so right in this book. Uh, last week we saw the five different kinds of sacrifices of the Levitical sacrificial system. The sin offering and the guilt offering uh, after these sacrifices in which the guilty party pays a, a ransom of restitution to the innocent party, that this death of a pure animal identified with the life of the impure person offering the sacrifice paid on their behalf. Then, after that sacrifice, then the ascension offering follows. The individual identifies with the pure animal and symbolically ascends to God, ascending to God's presence through the burnt smoke, the ascension offering. Then having symbolically ascended to the mountain of the Lord, the person also brings an offering of worship or of tribute and costly grain, a tribute offering, which then culminates in the final peace or fellowship offering, the only offering which the person making sacrifices uh, receives portion back to eat. This is symbolic and experiential, a meal that this person can share with his friends and family uh, as they are eating together in the presence of God, which is the entire purpose and the entire point of this entire process, this whole atonement or at-one-ment process, that a holy and just God might dwell in fellowship and peace and in friendship with his sinful and rebellious people, and that these sinful and rebellious people might visibly know and love an invisible God with symbols and with each other. So knowing God is the whole point of Leviticus. Knowing God is the whole point of the entire Bible. And knowing God is the entire point of each and every one of our lives. But just like you don't approach a lion, just like you don't just point a space shuttle straight at the sun, just like you don't just pick up a rod of like enriched plutonium or uranium while just like wearing flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt in order to allow and provide for an impure and unclean people to know him in security, comfort, and even safety, now God is going to give his people very specific commands with how to know and to approach him so that they are not consumed. This is Leviticus 8 through 10. Tonight we're going to consider these chapters in just two halves. The first half being knowing God according to God and knowing God according to self. So first of all, knowing God according to God. Now that God has described the kinds of sacrifices that are to be implemented by and led by the priests, uh, the Levites, chapter 8 is about preparing the Levites to do all of those sacrifices. And then with chapter 9 as the first day of all of this sacrificial worship there at the tabernacle. But chapter 8 
is really just an implementation of everything that God had previously told Moses about what the priests should do way back in Exodus 28 and 29, a text that we three years ago considered together. Uh, and so in doing this and thinking about what's happening in chapter 8, if you were around three years ago, some of the, this might sound really familiar because now Israel is finally doing what God had told them to do in Exodus 28. So uh, you heard Scott uh, read a lot about clothes here, like Aaron and the priest's clothes. Uh, this is like a head-to-toe catalog picture of what Israel's priests are going to look like or should look like. Uh, I almost picture what's happening here, kind of like, I don't know, if you follow a, a college football team or even an NFL football team on social media or something, and they're like rebranding with a new uniform, they'll bring out a player. It's almost like a model walking down the runway. And uh, everyone's supposed to see how this uniform, who represents this team, is to look. Helmet to cleats. Well, consider chapter 8 just like that. Helmet to cleats. But this is not just uh, a descriptor. It's not only the way that the priest is to dress from now on, but in doing so, the way that he dress is, dresses is supposed to distinguish himself uh, and set him and the other priests apart. After all, if you're, if you're like walking down Central and someone, you're walking down and you hear someone say, hey, stop! Like you might or may, may not turn to see who that person is, but if you just don't recognize this person at all, it's just some rando yelling at you, you might not stop at all. But if you turned and looked and saw that it was a police officer in full uniform, you would stop. The uniform signifies his role and vocation. And so uh, this is what's happening here. Now Exodus 28 and 29 goes way into, or more into way more detail about the clothes of all the priests. But the point of all of these clothes is that the garments are meant to resemble the tabernacle itself. The same vibrant blue and purples and scarlet and linen, all the cords and gold and chains, all of it. The priest is supposed to be like a little microcosm of the tabernacle itself as he walks in and amongst his people. He is set apart and devoted to a life of service and worship to the Lord. There are then instructions given for the high priest. In this first generation, the high priest is Moses' brother, Aaron. Later generations would be Aaron's sons and descendants. And Aaron is set apart and devoted here, which is what we see going on in Leviticus 8. The high priest is to wear a multicolored and checkered ephod. Here we go. Uh, an ephod is uh, kind of like a, an apron or a, like a soccer penny. Uh, and Exodus 28 explains that on the shoulders of the ephod, uh, he, the high priest, is to wear two stones with six names of the tribes of Israel on each side. So all 12 names of Israel on these stones on his shoulders. Uh, and then uh, the priest is also meant to wear this breastplate, the breastplate, this breastpiece, which has 12 stones. And on each stone is, again, a name of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The priest bears the name of all of his people over his heart as he represents them and mediates between them and God, something that we will consider even further in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. But before they do anything, before the priests do anything, first, Moses consecrates the entire tabernacle system. The tent, all the candle stands and uh, bowls and all this stuff, he consecrates and sets those things for holy worship with oil. And then the priests are to then, are to then first or consecrate themselves. They set themselves apart for priestly service, which is what Moses does with Aaron's sons in the rest of chapter 8. First, Aaron himself, the high priest, is anointed with oil. He receives a very costly and important substance that is poured 
all over him, which is just really weird. Like, if we were there, this would be very strange to watch. This yellowish olive oil just poured all over this guy's head. And if you have ever read Psalm 133, it harkens back to exactly what happens here in Leviticus 8, where David later would reflect on saying, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. That's weird. At first, you read this first sentence, you're like, yes, David, it is true. It is good and right for brothers to dwell in unity. And then he goes straight to this mental image of this old man with oil dripping down his beard, which is really creepy. But what's going on here? The costly top to bottom thing is what's going on here. Blessing drips down from Aaron's beard and spills down in equal measure all over the 12 tribes of Israel of his breastplate. Unifying blessing over the 12 tribes of Israel. Unity is established, formed, and preserved by the top-down blessing of God. And then Aaron and his sons are to gather at the altar outside of the tent. If you weren't here with us, this is a, a recreation of the tabernacle somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, but this is what it would look like, pretty scale. This is the altar that would be outside of this tent of meeting. And these, these priests, Aaron and his son, sons, are to go and first sacrifice for themselves before they do any work for the people. They make sacrifices for themselves. The priests themselves are sinful humans. They are human beings who do not love and trust God in all that they do and think. The priestly work of worship is tainted by impurity, by selfishness. They live in a world of sickness, death, and corruption. And so before they begin their work at all, they must be consecrated. They must be set apart, devoted for this new work of worship. They must be made holy. And we're going to take a week off from Leviticus next week on Easter Sunday. Uh, But I cannot wait to two weeks from now, get to the clean versus unclean animals thing in Leviticus 11 through 15. Uh, like, really? Seriously? Uh, I, I don't think I've ever understood all, any of that stuff, and for sure I don't understand any of that stuff as, like I do uh, now, but all of that stuff is what's going on here. What the priests are doing here in Leviticus 8 is a small microcosm, actually, of the entire story of the Bible of Adam, of Abraham, of Exodus, and Leviticus, of David, and Daniel, and Isaiah, and Ezekiel. It is the story of Jesus. It is about consecration. It is about holiness, which, oh man, come back in two weeks. But God, here's the story that we can trace through the whole of the Bible, is that God has created humanity. He has created humanity from the created natural world, from the ground, from the dirt. And yet, God, who is transcendent and outside of the natural world, we might say he is super or above, he is supernatural, uh, he has created humanity, we dirtbags, we people of the dirt, to not only partner with God in making his supernatural kingdom known and to flourish in the world, but that he would then even consecrate, transform the mortal dirtbag the mortal dirtbag who is susceptible to weakness, to sickness, to death and decay, into the eternal and to the incorruptible. The resurrection of Jesus. It's amazing that humans would be made like him. So, so much more in there two weeks from now. But in establishing the priesthood, 
into a glimmer of the the priestly work that we considered last week, the priestly work of Adam who participated with God in Genesis 1 and 2. The priests are then taken out of the people. They are cleansed. They are set apart by blood. If you read these chapters this week, it's really weird. They put blood on their earlobes and their fingers and their toes. Uh, We were joking about this last week. It really is kind of like a head, shoulders, knees, and toes thing. Uh, Like literally from top to bottom, from helmet to cleats, uh, the priests are set apart and identified with the sacrificial system. And beginning in verse 14, all of the priests, they have their hands on these two sacrifices of rams. It is gory and bloody, but this is the way that their sin, their decay, their death is now being made ceremonially clean, absorbed into the death of these animals. A bull is sacrificed as a burnt offering, a total and comprehensive offering to ascend to God. To use New Testament language, uh, the people might see outside the tabernacle system, they might look over and see smoke ascending into the skies, and they say, ah, yeah, the priests, or whoever the person was that was making that sacrifice, that the priests or those people, they're being sanctified. They're being made holy. They're being made clean as this priest or this person who made this sacrifice is ascending to on high, is ascending the mountain of the Lord. That person is getting sanctified. And so now the consecrated and sanctified priests are actually able to act as mediators, mediators between a pure and holy God on the one hand and an unclean and sinful people on the other hand. But they must first be in a place of purity, of cleanness, Kind of like they're acting kind of like, a, like an airlock or something. This in-between zone of two disparate climates. So it's almost as if the tabernacle, certainly the most holy place, which we'll consider in three weeks, is like a nuclear reactor. It is producing energy. It is producing life for the nation. And just like a nuclear reactor, there is nothing inherently bad about plutonium. It's just that handling it or handling it unprotected or handling it in our weak and susceptible human state makes plutonium dangerous. And so the priests here are just gearing up. They're going through the entire washing and cleansing process that a nuclear scientist might. They're putting on the hazmat suit with absolute carefulness. They're following every instruction that God gives them to protect themselves. So we read this in verse 4. We see that Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the tent of meeting. And then if you have an open ESV in front of you, what is the last line of every paragraph, save for one, for the rest of the chapter? Look at this. Verse 9, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 13, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 17, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. Yeah, we get it. Verse 36, as the Lord commanded Moses. Out of a sinful and corruptible people, God calls some out for consecration, for total devotion, for pure worship. They are cleansed and they are transformed, not so they can just have a peaceful life. These priests don't just every day get to make an Instagram post with an open Bible and a cup of coffee. No, they are there to work. They're working as intercessors, as mediators with, their, with the people's names on their hearts. The high priest and then the other priests work so that the rest of the people might know and worship God. So now that they're geared up, 
Now that they have followed the instructions and have their hazmat suits on, we read this in chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, the symbolic eighth day, after the full week of recreation that God has done in recreating his uh, place where he might dwell with his people in the tabernacle, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf or and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. And then, make special note of this, he gives a purpose statement. The reason why all of this is happening, the reason why we are doing all of this, end of verse 6, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Just like he did at Sinai, just like when he did at the very end of Exodus, the visible glory of the Lord, that all caps covenant name of the Lord, of Yahweh, would dwell amongst his people. As they have ascended to him in worship, he might descend to them in revelation. And so the rest of chapter 9 is Aaron leading the people through their very first worship service, their very first Levitical sacrificial worship service, a service of pure worship as the Lord commanded. And before we move on here, uh, this idea of pure worship is one of the heartbeats of the entire Protestant Reformation. We might say that the entire Reformation, beginning in the early 1500s or so, was about now on this side of the cross and under the new covenant of Christ, the, the, new, the, the entire Reformation was about taking texts like Leviticus 8, 9, and 10 really seriously. The reformers saw the church, who, just like this word we see several times in these chapters, the congregation, who at the tabernacle would assemble or gather to worship God, the church was almost like a, a great and mighty ship. Only this ship had, for over many centuries of neglect, the ship had accumulated, accumulated a dangerous amount of barnacles underneath the underbelly. So many barnacles that these barnacles might eat away and sink the entire thing. And so the reformers sought to scrape off the barnacles, clean the ship, returning what the church does when it gathers to what Scripture says it should do, or in Levitical language, that the church should do as the Lord commanded very often referring, the reformers would refer back to the primitive way, like the old, the first way, the apostolic way, the way of the apostles rather than meaningless or even idolatrous traditions that had fixed themselves onto the underbelly of the ark of salvation. And so that's what we've tried to do here at Christ Church over the past five years as a church. While there isn't a step-by-step -step biblical playbook that all churches must do from start to finish when they gather, there is certainly leeway and flexibility in those things, but we have tried to arrange our service to best reflect how God tells us to approach him in worship. He calls them. They confess their sins. He offers assurance. They respond in worship and in prayer. They seek to hear from him. They meet in fellowship around a covenant meal, and he sends them along their way. We see that very pattern from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, all so that God's glory might be made known to them. 
Because here's the deal. What we do on Sundays is not primarily about our feelings, not primarily about our emotions. I think we can tend toward thinking that any given Sunday is like a particularly good Sunday if we walk out of here particularly stirred emotionally. Our emotions are not bad, and it's good to worship God with our whole mind, strength, and our soul, with our emotions. But we can tend toward thinking about how we feel rather than the worship that we are bringing to God. Now, we can never bring perfectly pure worship. Our worship is accepted because of our identifying entirely with the the blood of the unblemished lamb. But, like, what do we, kind of as English-speaking American Christians, what do we typically call what you go to on a Sunday? Church, or even like a worship service. Have you ever thought about why we call this a service? That's weird. No, we are here to serve. We are actually coming here to work. We are coming to work in worship. Service of worship as unto the Lord, rather than what is becoming more and more commonly described of what Christians do on Sundays together. Not a worship service, but a worship experience. Go to this gathering of people that you might have a worship experience, which is all about what you feel. All right, so in talking a lot about this with many of you this week, we've decided that it would be well worth to swing back around to a preaching series that we did in our first six months together as a church of walking through every single element of what we do here on Sundays. Seven weeks, like a Sunday on call to worship and a Sunday on confession of sin, etc. So many of you weren't here five years ago, and so we think on the heels of Leviticus, uh, this might be a really helpful refresher to think about what we do when we gather. We might just do this like once every five years or so. So I'm sorry for mentioning Ephesians last week. Uh, It'll come. I think we're going to just, right after this though, just think about what God's people do when they come to worship. Because this is so much about what Leviticus is all about. So here's the thing about Leviticus 9 though. Because Moses and Aaron lead the people through a sacrificial worship exactly as the Lord commanded, then we read this in chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Worship. God accepts this entire sacrificial system. And there is atonement. There is at one the all-powerful, all-creative, all-glorious God of the cosmos is at one with his covenant people who revere him, who worship him, who love him. His glory appears to all the people, not just to Moses and Aaron, but because of their mediating work, now all the people see. This is a massive high point in the developing story that began way back in Genesis 1-1, that God is once again dwelling with his people. But just like so many stories throughout the Bible on the heels of a high point, there is an immediate cold bucket of water. Which now gets us to the second point. If Moses and Aaron meticulously led the people in knowing God according to God, then Aaron's sons cavalierly attempt to know God according to self. 
So knowing God according to self. In chapter 10, verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. While Leviticus 9 is a high point, there is still a limit in, the, in Leviticus. There is still a limit in the Old Testament to knowing and dwelling with God, a theme that we'll keep exploring over the next few weeks. But crucially here in Leviticus, there are limitations in Israel's approach to God. Nadab and Abihu, the oldest of Aaron's four sons, these guys just go for it. The text isn't entirely clear what they did wrong. It's kind of weird. They may have entered the tabernacle drunk, since immediately after, in verses 8 and 9, God tells Aaron that the priests must not drink wine or strong drink, uh, kind of like when they're on duty. When they're on the clock, they can't be drinking. So maybe that was a response to what Nadab and Abihu did. What, what the text is clear that they did do is they bring in unauthorized or strange or most literally, they bring in foreign fire, fire from the outside in order to light and burn the incense that is to be burned inside the tabernacle. They likely did not light their censers, the things that they would use to light incense. They did not light the censers from the fire of the altar. So maybe there's a lot of people surrounding the altar or something. They didn't want to have to fight through all these people. They just pulled out their zippos and just lit their censers right then and there. Whatever they did wrong, though, unlike their father Aaron and unlike Uncle Moses, who did everything as the Lord commanded. They entered the tabernacle doing things into verse 1, which he had not commanded. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 is a tragic reversal of every single thing that we have seen in Leviticus 8 and 9. Unlike the reverence and the obedience of Aaron in 8 and 9, Nadab and Abihu are casual. They are disobedient. Unlike the sacrifices being consumed in 9, 24, here, Nadab and Abihu are same word, they themselves consumed. Unlike the shouts of joy and worship from the people in 924, Aaron responds in silence. But in acceptance and judgment, the results of Leviticus 9 and Leviticus 10 are both the same. In 923 and in 10.2, God is glorified before all the people. God's glory is on center stage, whether it be in communion or in judgment. What's the big deal, though, you might say? This seems like a pretty harsh overreaction to lighting something on fire with a Zippo. Death? Consumed, really? Well, first of all, we wouldn't blame a rod of enriched uranium for being harsh and poisoning someone who handles it in flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt. It's not the uranium's fault, it's the person's fault for not rightly understanding what he is approaching and how he must conform himself to it rather than expecting it to conform itself to him. But secondly, we'll come back in two weeks and the week after that because we will mine the depths of this theme of holy versus unholy, of clean versus unclean, of how and why they cannot coexist and the links 
that God will go to to bridge this gap and to transform his people into his state of holiness. So in response to all this, God speaks directly to Aaron right after the deaths of his sons. And he gives the priests three main jobs in verses 10 and 11. To distinguish between the, the, the clean and the unclean, come back in two weeks, to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, come back in three weeks, and to teach the law to all the people, come back in four weeks. But a couple more things here about Nadab and Abihu before we move on. Nadab and Abihu, they cannot rely upon their pedigree as sons of the high priest. God is no admirer or respecter of last names, of who your parents are. Each person in each generation must approach God with the same kind of reverence and right worship as he has commanded. So kids, especially you teenagers and college students, you have got to begin taking on all of this upon yourself, not leaning upon your parents' faith, but making it your own, not leaning on their knowledge of God, but now your knowledge of God. Because in no time, I mean like in no time, all of you are going to be the 30-year-olds, the 40-year-olds, the 50-year-olds who are leading the church. If you are not knowing God more intentionally and deeply now, you will not later. You will not be what you are not becoming. Today, know the Lord. But parents, so much of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and especially Deuteronomy, is about teaching children the ways of the Lord. About what they must know to know God. Hopefully you saw Laurel's really encouraging email this week about the foundational truths that we want to intentionally instill in the children of Christchurch kids. And so we are just really excited to equip, better equip you parents and come alongside you in this important work of discipleship. Who knows? Maybe Aaron wasn't as clear as he could have been with his sons. I think he likely was. But we can always be more clear in our teaching of our children. But also, if Nadab and Abihu could not rely upon their pedigree or their last name, they also couldn't rely on their past experiences with God. Here's the thing. This is not the first time that we have ever seen Nadab and Abihu in the Bible. They were, one of, they were two of the 70 elders who in Exodus 24 went up on the mountain and beheld God's glory. So maybe they were thinking, here in Leviticus 9, when God's glory descends upon the tabernacle and consume the sacrifices, they're like, Nadab's like, bro, this is just like we saw a few months ago up on the mountain. Let's get some of that again. Maybe it really was about them. Maybe this really was an opportunity for another worship experience, to experience God rather than to come to worship God. They had placed themselves as the gravitational center of why God exists and what he is for. Perhaps namely their feelings, their emotional well-being. We've seen and used the word glory a lot here. And this word glory literally just means weightiness, the heaviness, the weightiness, the significance of God, which is why I think the gravitational center of force is actually a decent metaphor for thinking about the glory of the Lord. 
We as humans, in fact, all of creation, revolve around the glory of God, whether we admit it or recognize it or not. Just like we as earthlings uh, revolve around the gravitational force of the sun, whether we admit it or recognize it. It's just a reality. What arrogance, then, to assume that all of creation, what arrogance to assume that God himself revolves around you individually, you one in seven billion minute, insignificant person. What arrogance to assume that even God revolves around humanity more generally. We are a fragile species on a fragile planet in a tiny solar system in an averagely sized galaxy. What arrogance. We revolve around the glory of God. And yet God has revealed himself to humanity. This is unbelievable. That he reveals himself to a fragile species on a fragile planet. That he knows you individually. What incredible grace this is. God's revelation should never be taken for granted. He makes the invisible glory visible. Over and over again in the Old Testament storyline, he reveals his expectations for his people. Unlike other Canaanite peoples who make sacrifice and then fingers crossed hope that this God just accepts our worship. No, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, does accept their worship because he has given them the way. He has given them the model. He has given them his expectations. The Levitical sacrificial system is just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It is love upon love upon love that people might know him. The same can be said about the law. The same can be said about the narrative of how God has interrupted the story of the human race over and over and over again. The human race who is hell-bent on destroying themselves and destroying the world, he interrupts them over and over again by revelation, by speaking to them, by interrupting by grace. And yet, remember at the beginning of this sermon, Leviticus is just setting the stage. In Hebrews 1, we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has most clearly revealed himself. He has spoken to us in revelation most clearly in a new and finalizing way by his son. How? Jesus of Nazareth is the radiance of the glory, the weightiness, the significance the gravitational pull of the glory and majesty of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature, the invisible now made visible, the bodiless now taking on a body, a clear manifestation of God's nature and character. Are you confused by many parts of the Old Testament? Then read and understand and know Jesus. Know him, understand him, not picking and choosing parts of him, but understand Jesus Christ fully and comprehensively, and you will understand God. 
you will understand the triune God. You will understand Leviticus. You will understand the tabernacle system. You will understand all of these things if and when we know Jesus. Not only Jesus as the true and great high priest, which we'll consider more in three weeks. Not only as the Lamb of God who would die on on behalf of sinful and impure and unclean sinners on the cross. Not even as the entire tabernacle system, as John describes him in John 1. Where John says, and the word became flesh and dwelled, or literally, Jesus, the word of God, came and tabernacled among his people. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The entire structure of the entire tabernacle system, this whole system of of Leviticus gets absorbed into the tabernacle of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who moves about this mobile tent amongst his people, this hot spot of God's glory, bringing his people into knowledge of God. And he atones for their sins so that they might be at peace in covenant friendship with the gravitational weight of the entire universe. Incredible. But here's the best part. And we're only going to scratch the surface on this theme for what I'm about to say today. But in Leviticus, the glory of God dwelled and tabernacled among his people. This side of the cross, this side of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God dwells and tabernacles within his people. Jesus told the people in Jerusalem that the temple must be torn down and then three days later it would be raised up. Meaning the old way of God dwelling among his people in the old covenant, it's got to go. He, Jesus, the living tabernacle and temple of God must be destroyed that he might be raised and glorified as the new and better temple of a new and better covenant. He, as the better law-giving Moses, as the better law-mediating Aaron, as the better worshiping Israel, ascends the mountain of the Lord. Not just symbolically, but now even physically. And then he pours out his spirit from on high that he might build a new temple. A new temple, this time, 1 Peter 2, of living stones. That's you. Living stones that is built up into a house of worship. A temple made up of his people in which the glory of God lives and dwells that they might move about this world, not just as living stones, but as a kingdom of priests. Jesus calls out people to live their new role as priests who live lives of consecrated worship, who explain and teach the way of God, of knowing God to a perishing world around them, inviting the world to know him, to worship him, to love him, living lives of love because God has first loved us. God for his people, God in his people, God through his people. Leviticus is great, but Jesus is so much better. It's true. All of it, as Han Solo once said. Unbelievable what this is preparing us for and culminates in, finds its fulfillment in the God-man Jesus Christ. This is just the scratch. Let's keep digging and knowing, delighting and worshiping, living and loving the one who has revealed himself, the one who has tabernacled among us. 
The one who has lived and died and ascended on our behalf and now transforms his people to live these lives of worship, to live these mediating lives of a dying world to a holy God, being sanctified all, all along the way into his image. This is what we were made for. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have the gravitational center of the whole cosmos, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made clear to us by your word and by your Son, your expectations for our lives, your expectations for our worship of you, but not only expectations, but the grace to empower us that you might live not just among us, but within that you are transforming us from the inside out. God, continue your work. Sanctify us completely and wholly, entirely for your worship, for your glory. Lord, we are sorry for the ways in which we are indifferent, that we are lazy, that we are even uh, belligerently opposed to you at some points. God, give us grace. We're so thankful for your patience for your loving kindness toward us. Continue your great work. God, we pray that even through thinking through this book of Leviticus, that you might call some, that you might call many to new covenant with you, to peace and friendship with you. Might we commune with them, might we commune with you in peace and with love and enjoying the transformation, the sanctification that you are bringing by your Son and through your Spirit. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.